0: Welcome to the Garden Culture Podcast, hosted by me, Bailey Van Tassel. I'm a self-taught gardener, busy wife and mother, and small business owner on a mission to live a garden-inspired life. Each month, we will explore what's going on in the garden and fields, as well as get to know incredible people who infuse their own lives with the magic of the garden. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned here, please visit us at baileyvantassel.com podcast. Today's episode is such a treat. I'm speaking with Angela Ferraro Fanning and she is such a wealth of knowledge. She went from being sort of a self-proclaimed holistic homesteader to a full-blown permaculturist, all self-taught because she started out actually as a graphic designer. Angela shares with us a little bit about her homestead, her journey, and how even the tiniest, newest home gardener working with just one pot can implement permaculture strategies. It is such a beautiful listen. Get a notepad out if you're really passionate about this. I took a ton of notes, but Angela is a wealth of information and truly has an inspiring look at what it takes to just shift our mindset a little bit to work with the land, with the environment, as opposed to just sort of imposing our will as gardeners So, that you don't have to constantly be gardening and instead you can just be living sort of in awe of nature and your space. Such a great conversation. I cannot wait to dive in. Good morning, beautiful Miss Angela. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so excited to chat with you because A, we've known each other for a long time and we've never had an in depth conversation about permaculture, but you've been on my list of like, experts I need to talk to and interrogate in some fashion, but also because um, you have this really incredible amount of knowledge about something that I think is just vastly under talked about. And I'm really excited to introduce you in the way that you think to like the average home gardener. So I'm just really excited.
1: I'm excited too. Thank you for having me.
0: You're so welcome. So something that I think I don't always do a good job of is help people understand in context, like where you are and what you're doing. So I would love for you to, um, sort of introduce us briefly to where you are and what you're doing. Cause you, you were just mentioning that the state that you're in, and mm-hmm. I think that will help everybody picture you in your life.
1: Okay. So you want to step into to Angela's world real quick. You want me to give you an awful tour?
0: Yeah, just Um, like a top line of kind of what you got going on over there.
1: Okay, so I'm located in central New Jersey. I'm on a six acre historic homestead. And what that means is it was um, built and created in 1775. I moved here about eight years ago, but I've been a homesteader for 10 or 11 years now. So I did start at a small three quarter of an acre property. I started gardening. I've actually always been, a a hobby gardener. I started with ornamentals, then got into vegetable gardening and my previous three quarter acre property. I was running my own graphic and website design business and having some postpartum depression. And I sort of had this whole identity shift where I was like, I don't really want to be behind the computer anymore. You know, I had this new sun and like trying to meet all these deadlines didn't really jive with this new life that I was creating and caused me a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. So I really had to ask myself, okay, what do I want to do? What's going to make me happy? And I knew that I just really loved my garden and I wanted to grow as much homegrown food as I could. And so, you know, I I talked to my husband about it and we decided I was going to close my business, wean myself off my paycheck and replace um, a paycheck and income with homegrown food. And so I learned to preserve food so we could eat year round from the garden garden was very small, so I started replacing ornamentals with edibles in terms of landscaping. And then we got the ducks for eggs, and I started taking a beekeeping class and getting into composting. And then we got the goats. And the reason that that was a pivotal moment is because the neighbors and the, the community that we were living in was not supportive of an agricultural lifestyle in that particular neighborhood. And the zoning mm-hmm. officer got involved. Long story short, I didn't want to quit doing what I was doing, so we needed to move. And that's how we ended up at the property that we're at now. Wow. And I've always been, yeah, it was, it was a big, it, um, it was a bit of a journey, uh, a steep learning curve for a couple of years, but I've always been eco-friendly sort of in the background. I read all the books about using less stuff and creating a greener home. And I had um, my, my website design business was eco-friendly. I wrote a book about eco-friendly graphic design. So all of these sort of um, different paths came together and created this holistic homestead, is what I called it. I did not know at the time what permaculture was. I just wanted a way to grow food and raise animals in alignment with nature. And when I learned that this was called permaculture, mimicking these natural patterns, I went down the rabbit hole because now I had all of these resources available to me from cultures and people that have been doing this for years and years. And so I just ate it up. And that's what I do now is I homestead with animals and grow as much food for my family as possible in a way that mimics patterns in nature and gives more back to the land and the natural ecosystem than what we take.
0: Okay. I love this. So I was going to ask you basically what is permaculture, but you just defined it for us. Um, And I think it's incredible you came by it very naturally. So I'm curious, how did everything shift for you? Like what were some of the realizations you had, I guess, when you started becoming a little bit more focused on permaculture as opposed to just, I feel like traditional gardening is about a lot of control and it's really about like the gardener imposing their will on the space. And I'm curious- what changed for you, if you can remember any tweaks that you made as you were transitioning from maybe just what you were taught into this sort of new practice? Although it it sounds like it was very natural for you, but like, was there anything specific?
1: I mean, I think the first time I thought of plants and animals working together and sort of thinking of plants and animals as having jobs and performing functions that actually worked to my advantage
2: Mm. was
1: when I started composting and when I started keeping ducks, because mm-hmm. then it became greater than the garden. I had done companion planting. I mean, the, the space that I was living in at that time was very wooded. We had bear, we had rabbits, fox, coyote, fisher fish, or cat. We, had a, we had all this game here in New Jersey. And so to grow a garden, I was wearing lettuce, literally, seriously, no joke, without a fence, a physical fence and things worth eating it. And my neighbors would walk by and they said, I have questions. Mm. I remember very specifically, she goes, why isn't anything getting eaten? <laughs> I said, yes. it's, com- it's companion planting. Like, yeah, I had dogs that would kind of roam the property and, you know, they were just golden retrievers. They would keep like curious bear away. But I was keeping the rabbits from eating my greens with like compact, very dense plantings of um, nasturtium. And it was vining its way through my lettuce and nothing was bothering it. And then I was planting garlic around my rose bushes and it was keeping, you know, the Japanese beetles away. And so Mm -hmm. that's where I started to see benefits of companion planting. And then when we brought the ducks in and I started using bedding, soiled bedding as mulch and as an additive to create organic matter and nutrients in my soil. I saw what the ducks were doing in terms of their contribution to the garden let alone then I realized you can actually turn them into the garden once your plants are established and they're going to eat your snails and slugs. And then I don't have to use anything, buy anything, handpick. They're going to do it all for me. Th- that was a real light bulb moment for me. It was like, things are supposed to work together. It's yeah. not supposed to be a human in isolation with their garden. That's yes. not sustainable. That doesn't work long-term, So I don't say sustainable as in like eco-friendly. I say sustainable as in if you t- stop and take a break, the garden's going to become infested because now you've made it rely on you to be a solution for pest control. It's not going to work long term. Mm-hmm. If you want it to be automated and work long term, you need to bring in natural predators to that prey. If you're not going to be the natural predator all the time yourself.
0: Okay, this is so interesting. So for someone that was getting that's getting started, first of all, you've painted a beautiful picture and I want to hear a little bit more too about where you see permaculture in action. Um, But if someone were listening to this and it's like, oh my God, okay, I don't have like the money or the time or the space to start doing like ducks and goats and all the things. What do you, what would be the first like two or three things you would recommend for like a suburban garden, just like a little backyard, four raised beds or something like that?
1: Yeah. So the really great thing about permaculture is it's all based on patterns that already happen in nature. So essentially, the first thing you have to do is switch your brain off or switch it in a different direction from how do I control this to, okay, what can I bring in naturally to help? So the first thing that you can do is make sure you have healthy soil in your garden beds because healthy soil creates healthy plants. If plants are stressed, they're going to be more prone to dying and decay from pests and disease. So we need to fortify plants with compost, we need to give them mulch so they can retain their water. We need to create just good overall garden sanitation practices so we can give our plants the best shot for success that they have. The next thing would be to be plant, um lots of perennials. So mm-hmm. perennials offer a habitat to native birds and insects. And I have never seen so many praying mantis egg cases As I have now, now that we have aronia berries, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, we're giving them plants to set up a shelter and stay in year round. And when you have a praying mantis in your garden, you are literally taking care of your own pests by just allowing them to forage and do what they do. They eat insects. That's what they do. Mm. So the perennials are going to be excellent because they're going to create those those habitats. They're going to invite those natural predators. And also then you can reap a harvest and not have to plant every single year. They also do other beneficial things like their roots, loose and compacted soil. Um, they sequester more carbon from the atmosphere. So all around perennials are just a really great thing to do. And then another thing you can do no matter the size of your growing space, whether it be a raised bed, an in-ground garden, a farm market garden, or even just a container is learn some of the companion planting relationships. You know, whether it be a fruit tree or just a crop like a tomato, um, plants have friends and they have enemies. And when we learn to surround them by supportive friends, things they like, um, we can help draw in more beneficial insects to help pollinate them and increase our garden yields. We can plant things that insects that might attack that plant normally on its own. We can plant a companion that would help deter some of those things because it might not like the smell. You know, I mentioned the garlic and the roses, for Mm -hmm, example. mm -hmm. So just learning some of these relationships and what companions can do, not just from an insect perspective, but also like a nutrient perspective. Some things create nitrogen and fix it in the soil. Some things pull up uh, nutrients that are really deep in the soil's layers and pull it upwards so the plant can actually harness it a little better. So companions are also really important. And these are all things that we can do on any scale.
2: Yeah,
0: definitely. Oh my gosh. I love this. You know what? You're the first person that I've interviewed to talk about the importance and the benefits of perennials. And Mm. I think it's a little mind blowing and I'm just so glad that you brought that up. Um, What are some of your favorite perennials that you have that you feel like just really like work overtime for the garden?
1: I mean, you have the, the normal key players, the normal characters, right? Like you have your blueberry bushes and your strawberries and asparagus, but then there's things that I seek out now that I'm really excited about. Like one is um, called nine star broccoli. It's a Mm. perennial broccoli, comes back every year and it actually comes back white. So it looks like cauliflower, but it's considered a broccoli species. Um, Longleaf ground cherry is uh, perennial. There's things that are tree collards or tree kales. They get super tall and you can eat from them every single year. and then just all of the perennial herbs and flowers and things that support those plants that create these little working ecosystems. Um, so here at my farm, I'm not really your normal homesteader. Yes, I grow tomatoes and I grow all the annuals like peppers because I love them. But I place way more priority and importance on growing perennials, way more.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's yeah, the
1: majority that's- of what we eat and harvest.
0: That is so interesting. Okay, so something else I kind of want to mention is just briefly, cause- I don't want to totally harp on it, but you are plant based, right? In your or am I totally wrong?
1: No, you're right. Yep, I we eat um, cheese, but we don't eat our eggs. Don't so drink uh, dairy. Don't don't eat meat.
0: Yep. What do you guys? What do you do with the eggs?
1: I sell them at the farm stand, and I oh, donate them to the food
2: pantry.
0: Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, I have your cookbook. And I'm going to ask you about all the books later because you're developing quite the body of work, which is so inspiring and incredible. Um, and you're just so knowledgeable. I I love it. Um, okay. But I want to go back to um, talking a little bit about your specific homestead because I saw something on your Instagram that was like sending me into a rabbit hole. So you <laughs> shared, about, <laughs> which could just happen on a daily basis. Um, you shared about a farm, I believe in France that has inspired the way you're designing your property. And I would love to hear more about that.
1: Sure. So when I started finding out that permaculture was an actual practice and it was much deeper than just this holistic homestead that I kind of had dubbed it, um, I started doing a lot of research and finding, um farms and homesteads where this was already in practice, where it had worked for them, so I could not only learn from their experiences, but also glean ideas that I could implement into my own space, what, you know, given whether or not they had a similar climate.
2: Sure. Um, there's
1: a farm in um, France called La Ferme du bec and there is a couple that lives there, and um, farms this land. They started with animals and crops, and I believe they're primarily a market garden solely. But they have converted the majority of their space. And when I say that, I mean the actual footprint of the land, the actual like real estate. They have uh, transformed it into growing spaces. And so um, I do see there's still some videos and things on there about how they use oxen or horses or something similar for, for plowing or for extra strength and power, but I think they did away with those because they thought that it took too much space up, not just for grazing, but actual physical path space. Mm
2: -hmm. And so
1: they got rid of all of that and they now have um, a lot of employees that use small walking pads and hand tools. They can have even more space for growing food and they do it in a way that really um, doesn't impact the environment negatively you know, they have their chicken coop in a greenhouse. Uh, that what? way, yeah, the chicken coop, they can grow food on top of the, or they can grow food on top of the chicken coop roof because the heat from the chickens helps allow them to extend their growing season. And then because the coop is right there um, inside a greenhouse, they can take the manure and easily apply it where they want to on their greenhouse crops. And that's just one example. There are farms all over The country here in the United States and all over the world for that matter that are using aquaculture. You know, they'll have like a big hoop or grow house and they have a fish stock tank and they have ways to drain the water out and take advantage of the manure from the fish and feed it to the roots of the plants. And so that way they create like an aquaculture. They can grow lettuce and it doesn't at all touch the water that's, you know, been contaminated by fish manure. It's only the roots that are able to touch that. Thus, they're able to receive liquid. Uh, nutrients from the manure-laden water. And so it creates this cyclical thing where the roots clean out the water, and that water then returns to the fish tanks, the fish contaminate it with their manure, that water then is leached into, you know, whatever vessel they're growing in, like a gutter or a raised bed, and then again, it's filtered through by the roots, and goes back in. So there's lots of ways that we can grow food without having any impact on the environment
2: whatsoever.
0: Oh my Negative. God. It's so incredible. I just love the fact that <laughs> the world is having this resurgence of information coming through because it's truly mind blowing. And there's so many ways. I'm always trying to understand where progress has gone too far versus progress being a benefit because we didn't understand, you know, history and context. And these are great examples, I feel like, of human ingenuity and intelligence and progress working hand in hand with nature acting as nature. Right. That's so amazing.
1: It's interesting, but it's also definitely a point of contention, right? There's a lot of people that don't believe in climate change. There's a lot of people that don't um, see humans as a they believe in climate change, but they don't see humans as the cause of it. Um, and so there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of arguments surrounding it. I think the best thing to do is just evaluate your growing operation, whether or not you're passionate about the environment, whether or not you believe that the climate or the world is heating up, just to look at it as, okay, well, is there a way that I might be able to grow this crop without killing something? You know, we don't use BT. We don't use diatomaceous earth. I don't use, and I literally use nothing nothing in my growing space and we're not suffering because of it. (laughs) We're We're thinking differently. We're thinking the way that mother nature does.
0: I love that so much. You know, it's, um, I still see a lot of people give advice on using things like neem oil, um, organic neem oil, you know, and it's like, you know, truly any application of a substance like that can have harm. On our soft-bodied insects and pollinators, um, and kind of like you said, it's just it—it's not necessary. Like nature can thrive without our intervention in that way. Um, I'm curious if you do, however, anything like um, like a calm-free fertilizer or something like that, where you are sort of like biodynamic approaches.
1: Yeah. So if my plants are in need of a nutrient boost, then I will do a compost tea. I've also done comfrey tea. Um, But really my my goal and my thought process is, okay, at the end of every growing season, because I am in the North, right? I'm in New Jersey. I clear my raised beds of any disease, debris, anything that's going to infect the soil in a negative way is removed. I add compost. I add bedding. These things break down. Um, I cover crops because I want the green manure in there. I want all the benefits from the plant. And then come spring, my soil should be replenished to the point that it can actually sustain crops. I think when people are going through this process of fertilizing every two weeks, it's because they've killed the ecosystem that is within the soil. Yeah. Your plants, and their roots should be able to have a beck and call system with the mycorrhiza, the nematodes, the beneficial fungi. They should be able to operate sustainably and maintain themselves. Your roots and your soil should all be working together so that you're not feeding your plants constantly. When you feed your plants constantly, that communication system between the roots and the soil begins to die. And that's why we have depleted soil, because Mm -hmm. we no longer have that communication system in place. We, don't, we no longer have the soil network alive. When you kill that is when your plants now rely on you. And I think that in the short run, that really worked great. You know, I had an interview with Temple Grandin and I was talking to her about what she thought about sustainable farming and that sort of thing. And she's like, in the long term, people growing monocrops and feeding them with fertilizers, sure, that, that was great as a short-term solution, but in the long term, it doesn't work and people are wrecking it. Is what she said. And I think there's so much power in that statement. Um, you know, I definitely am not a soapbox permavangelist or anything like that. <laughs> I just think that we've gone too far in one direction. If we can rein it in a little bit and try to tap back into what, the, you know, Mother Nature does, we can really create a stronger growing space.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And um, similarly, the farther along in my own gardening journey, really like the less gardening I actually do. (laughs) Um, It's more like observing and preparation, honestly, in terms of like the hard work. And um, people ask me that a lot, like how much time do you spend in your garden every day? And it's like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes. And that's like walking around and checking things out and harvesting. I'm not really out there with like a hoe or fertilizer or anything You know, there's a couple times throughout the year that I'm changing things over and doing some work to keep, to help the garden be set up, but I'm not, I'm not out there every single day, like working. It's, it's working on its own. Yeah. Okay. Real quick. I want to tell you about the Kitchen Garden Society. It's my monthly gardening club for all levels of gardener and in all U.S. hardiness zones. We're helping gardeners everywhere save time, maximize your yield, and build your true instincts. Each month in the Kitchen Garden Society, you get a to-do list of what to be harvesting, sowing, and transplanting, as well as what you should tend and task to. You get seasonal recipes and deep-dive timely lessons to accompany the skills you're going to need in the garden this time of year. You hear from experts each month and get daily inspiration for seasonal living as well as the opportunity to share and ask questions in our members-only Facebook group. I hope you'll visit us at thekitchengardensociety.com and check it out. Amazing. Um, So I'm curious, and this is a little bit of a pivot. If there was anyone, I'd like to hear a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing. Did you grow up in a family that gardened and grew things and farmed, or did you come by this by way of, was there someone in your life that inspired you or how did it all happen for you way back in the beginning?
1: I mean, when I was really, really little, I remember picking strawberries with my grandpa in his neighbor's backyard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember, I think at one point in my childhood, my parents did a watermelon patch. Uh, but no, I, don't, I do not come from an agricultural background. I do not come from a farming family. Um, I did live in the Midwest before I moved to the East Coast here. But that is the extent of my, you know, my stereotypical relationship with farming. I did not like camping. I did not like going to the outdoors, but I did always just really love flowers and growing ornamentals. And then when I got my first home, that's when I decided I wanted to grow some herbs. And I'm a, I'm a big foodie. Mm-hmm. And so having fresh ingredients in my dishes, that appealed to me and so I thought well I, the freshest way to have ingredients is to grow them yourself and so then I started kind of getting into vegetable gardening that way and it just continued to snowball. I just really found that I had such a passion for growing and then you know I'd always loved horses. My dad took me on a, little, a lot of trail rides when I was little. I never had horses and so I always knew when I grew up I wanted them so there's always been just kind of a love for animals yeah, and Like I mentioned before, a love for, you know, eco-conscious living and, um, they, they really just kind of all came together.
0: I love how you've just sort of followed the passionate cues in your life to sort of take you one step further because now, I mean, you, you mentioned the horses, but you have two, are they Clydesdales? Like huge horses that are so beautiful.
1: Yes. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Um, yes, they are Clydesdales. They make are. Sure. Okay. I grew up with horses and mules, but I was like you, I was not, well, I don't know. Not like you, my, my dad would take me on trail rides enough, but I was not interested at all when I was younger. <laughs> and now I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? Um, no. But I just couldn't, I was just, I wanted to be a ballerina and anyways, enough about me. But um, I think it's beautiful how you've taken these there's been a common thread. It sounds like throughout your life in terms of where your interests lie and where your heart is. Like, there's no doubt that you're, I feel like living out sort of your calling. Um, but I love how you've been really true to that.
1: Thank you. You know, for, for me, and I think also now in the days of maybe social media and more online platforms, I think there's a lot of traction and homesteading and, farming, but I think there's a lot of people who don't necessarily feel it's their calling. It's sort of a trend. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with more people homesteading. I believe in it as a lifestyle. And so I think it's great the more people that do it. But for me it's not really about a popularity contest. If social media goes away, I'm still gonna be living the same way that I live now. For me, this is this is truly in my soul and in my bones. Like I know I'm supposed to be doing this lifestyle. And I don't share about it because I'm trying to convert anyone. I don't share about it because I'm trying to, you know, verbally vomit my thoughts and opinions. I share it because it's my passion. And when you're passionate about something, you just want to share it with the world. And if it inspires somebody to grow a tomato plant, that's awesome.
2: Totally. And there's
1: a lot of pushback that comes with it. That's part of it. I don't like it, so I don't often engage in comments that much in social media spaces because I'm not out to argue. I'm not out to create a war with anyone. I just wanna share my passion for living the way that I do. That's
2: all. I love
0: that so much. Um, Okay. So speaking of sharing your passion, as mentioned, you have quite a few books. Um, Tell us about what you've written. And I'd also want to know what you have coming up on the horizon.
1: Sure. So um, my first book series is called The Little Homesteader. This is printed with a publisher out in the UK. So you can find the books in the States. Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand. And I think there's the rights to print in a few other countries, I think Spain and France. Um, The idea is just to help people get into a more eco-friendly mindset, whether or not you have a farm or a homestead. You can live in a high-rise in a metropolitan area. You can have a huge, massive farm with animals. It's just about thinking more in alignment with nature and saying, okay, what's available right now? What's in season? What can I do for activities? What can I cook? And it's a four-part series broken down into the different seasons. Um, Then the other one that I have is a cookbook that I co-wrote with a friend and self-published. And that's called The Harvest Table. And that's just a four-part cookbook, um, again, broken down into the seasons to help people say, even in the wintertime, I can really eat from a CSA or from my backyard. And it's like, yes, you can. Here's some recipes. And so that just is an advocate for seasonal eating. The one that I'm most proud of and that's closest to my heart is my book that I just recently wrote called The Sustainable Homestead. And that is the compilation of everything that I do here in trying to help people assess their own growing sites, look for ways that they can harness water or energy and stop erosion and work with their soils to improve it. And then bring in crops and bring in animals and talk about cover cropping and pasture management and really create their own sort of permaculture situation. So all those books are available on Amazon and uh, the Little Homesteader series and the Sustainable Homestead are available wherever you get.
0: I'm just going to link to all of those in the show notes for everybody listening. Um, I'm really excited to get my hands on the Sustainable Homestead because I'm just excited. You're so knowledgeable. It's incredible. (laughs) Thank
1: you. Um, And then as for what's coming up, will I write another book? I don't know. I wrote all of these books in the span of two years. I'm sure that I have another book in me, but six is a lot to kick out in a short amount of time. So right now I'm just kind of taking a break and focusing on the farm here. We're actually getting ready to install a third pond this week. I just put in like a Mediterranean cold hardy section so that I could grow my own olives and figs. And so that's all um, underway right now. Okay. That
0: sounds fabulous. Fabulous is that easy to do in your climate
1: i am thrilled to have just learned a couple of weeks ago that there are cold hardy olives that will thrive in, in zone seven and oh so gosh. i have my olives i just put in and then we have turkey figs which i don't know how they are but we're going to grow them because somebody's going to like them yeah. and so those are going to be interplanted in between along with artichoke and lavender so we have our own little you know our neighborhoods our guilds our mini ecosystems going. Yes. Um, so right now I'm I'm excited to just put my all my energy, not just into my family, but back into the farm, because I feel like it's only had like half ass energy for a couple of years. And so, uh-huh. yeah, that's where I want to be right now. I don't have any books on the horizon that I know of. I'm sure there will be another one at some point. But right now I'm not. Just, I'm just not. You just
0: that. sealed your fate on another one. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> Okay. Speaking of books though, and this is something I ask everyone, I'm amassing this incredible list. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I'm, I'm going to make it obviously. I mean, without having to listen to every episode, although everyone should, um, (laughs) I want to know what your top book recommendations are for gardening, permaculture, sort of anything that we've talked about today. What would you recommend that we read or what have you just loved reading?
1: So my two favorites are Restoration Agriculture by Mark Shepard. I really, really love Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. If you are interested on reading more about that farm, La Ferme du Bec à though that I mentioned in France, um, check out their book, Miraculous Abundance. Ooh. The first two that I mentioned are more um, They're not so much a memoir like Miraculous Abundance, which is still wonderful and interesting. But Restoration Agriculture and um, Dirt to Soil, they have all of the science, all of the studies, all of the facts to kind of talk about what permaculture does, where commercial farming has taken us as a society and what we can kind of do to think differently or change things for the better. And so those ones I really love because they gave me a lot of insight and a lot of resources other than like reading, you know, like university articles in county extension journals. So it's really yeah. nice to have another resource for that. And they're, they're very good and very knowledgeable authors. I but yeah, that. Miraculous Abundance if you want to kind of hear about somebody else's journey into creating a permaculture farm, that is certainly one that's entertaining and um, also very, very inspiring.
0: Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Okay, so where can everybody find you if they just need more and in their lives? <laughs> so
1: Axe and Root Homestead is the name of my farm. You can find Axe and Root Homestead, that's my username, on Instagram, TikTok, and also on YouTube. Um, and then I have a podcast with another friend, another homesteader called Homestead Education. And so um, we should pick up recording again in the fall. So those are the places you can find me.
2: Awesome.
0: I love that so much. Well, thank you for chatting with me today. I I took more notes actually in our conversation than I think I have in the history of anyone, because um, if, if anyone listening can't tell, I'm just very interested in helping, like you have sort of convert people from just home gardening to like home permaculture that yields food. And um, just practical application is where it's at. So just even hearing your plant recommendations is really exciting. Cause it just, it just reframes, like you said, and, you know, step number one is sort of change the way you think about it. And I always think that's a fun exercise and it's just so expansive when you, when an old dog learns new tricks, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I think that's great.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And no, I hope, yes, I hope you have a great week.
1: Likewise.
0: Thank you, Bailey. Okay. Bye. I hope this episode has been balm for the soul and inspiration for the heart. I would love if you left a review to let me know your thoughts or anything you're interested in learning. And I'm so grateful that you found this space for more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned. Visit us at BaileyVantassel.com
2: podcast.